Hey, good evening. Good to see you guys. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2? And uh, Peter in this uh, chapter has been admonishing uh, us who are Christians to, you know, kind of strip away. That's the language he's been using. Strip away the old life, the old manner of living that we walked in before we were saved. And, you know, Put on the new man, as Paul put it. Put on the new man, uh, which means uh, begin living a holy life, a, a life for God. Uh, in fact, I love how Paul put it in Colossians 1 verse 10. He said that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Just how do we walk worthy of the Lord, uh, fully pleasing him? Well, it starts by submitting every area of your life to God, to God's authority, and obeying all that He has said. That's really where it, I believe it starts. How do we walk a walk that's worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him? Again, it starts by submitting your entire life to Him, to His authority, and obeying all He has said. Of course, guys, the opposite of submitting to God is living in rebellion against God, which is what uh, characterizes those who don't know God. This is what happened to Israel. God's people, God led them out of Egypt in a very powerful way. As we all know, we've studied Exodus. We all know that. And God led them into the wilderness, and uh, there he made a covenant with them and eventually brought them into the promised land and planted them in a choice land, flowing with milk and honey, with all kinds of natural uh, resources and blessings and so on. But as time went on, they became kind of complacent. When you, ha when you have everything you need plus a lot of stuff you don't need, right? You don't really have to depend on God for your daily bread. You don't have to depend on God to provide what you need. You're in a land of plenty. And so people began to become apathetic. Some of these Christians in these third world countries, their walk is so strong. Why? Because every day they have to depend on God for their food, uh, shelter maybe, but even for protection against those who would hurt them. So they're always on their knees. They're always drawing close with God, and uh, it keeps their walk with them very vibrant, very strong. Um, but Israel kind of drifted. They had so much that they kind of got their eyes off of the Lord. And, you know, when you get your eyes off of God, you will invariably get your eyes onto some other God. Uh, self is a big one. But uh, they, they began to focus on a lot of the gods of the uh, Canaanites that they, you know, they dispossessed. But... We read, and you have to turn to these. I'll just read you a couple. There's dozens, maybe hundreds of passages on this subject we can look at. But Ezekiel 20, verse 13, God is lamenting uh, the condition of his people. Yet the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but they despised my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. Then I said I would pour out my fury on them in the wilderness to consume them. And we see that happen at least once. Uh, where they provoke God and he sent the fiery serpents and then another time something else I forgot exactly but uh, didn't take them long did it after they came out of Egypt they weren't even in the promised land yet already rebelling uh, Hosea chapter 4 verses 16 to 19 God said for Israel is stubborn like a stubborn calf Ephraim is joined to idols let them alone their drink is rebellion they commit harlotry continually her rulers dearly love dishonor the wind has wrapped her up in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. And, and that's just two of many passages we could look at uh, where Israel had turned away from God. We're walking in open rebellion against God. You know, God condemned rebellion in no uncertain terms to King Saul, who was famous for not obeying what God had said. And finally, the Lord sent the prophet Samuel to him. And of course, you all know the scripture, 1 Samuel 15, 23 God speaking to, to Saul through Samuel, uh, he said, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Now, of course, guys, <laughs> we, we all once walked in uh, rebellion towards the laws of God, in the stubbornness of our hearts. But then God saved us and gave us a new heart. He saved us and gave us a new heart. And Paul in Romans 7, he said that my new nature, which he called the inward man in chapter 7, verse 22, 
The inward man consisting of my new heart, Paul said, my new man, my new heart delights uh, to keep God's laws. So why don't we always do that? Well, because we have another member warring within us, which is the old nature. Turn to Romans 7. Oh, that it were that easy. Once we get saved, the new nature moves in, the old nature dies or moves out. And now all we have is the new nature, all we have, no temptation to sin, no rebellion anymore. That would be, and you know what? That's going to happen someday, isn't it? When the Lord comes for us and gives us that glorified body, we will be separated once and for all from this body of death, as Paul put it. The fallen nature that right now is warring with my new nature for dominance, right? Paul mentions this in Romans 7, starting with verse 22. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, according to my new nature. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. My bodies we talk about, okay, the flesh. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Now guys, we talked about this at length last week, about the war that takes place inside of every child of God. Once you get saved, you get the new nature, and now there's this war. The spirit is warring against the flesh, the flesh against the spirit. These, are all, these two are constantly warring with each other for dominance of your life. You get to choose who's going to control you. It's not automatic. If it was automatic and the spirit of God always controlled those who belong to him, we would have no need for the epistle, basically. We had no need for correction or encouragement or, uh, you know, Paul or the other apostles um, uh, basically, you know, pushing us to, to walk with God. It would be automatic. It's not. Because we have to choose which nature is going to dominate. There is such a thing as carnal Christians. Now, there, some would disagree with me. But if you go to, I'm getting off a little bit, but if, if on your own time you want to go to 1 Corinthians chapters 2 and then 3, Paul talks about the natural man, the spiritual man, and the carnal man. The natural man, of course, is a flatter unbeliever. The spiritual man is somebody who is a Christian walking in the spirit. And then you have the carnal man. And don't forget, the carnal man is a Christian who is still allowing the, the, the old nature to control them. Paul opened up his epistle to the Corinthians. By saying, look, you guys have all the gifts of the Holy Spirit in operation in your church. Don't let people fool you. If they, a church has a lot of gifts of the Spirit, don't make the mistake of thinking, wow, they're really a spiritual group. Think of the Corinthians. Paul said, you have all the gifts of the Holy Spirit operating in your church. I wish though I could speak to you like mature believers. I can't. I have to address you like carnal believers, babes. Why? Because of all the fighting and bickering and jealousies and all this stuff happening this is a mark of carnality paul is saying so you can have these gifts but still be very carnal but we we talked about this because spiritual warfare is so much a part of our christian life we don't realize it we know it's real the bible talks about it but if we only knew from the time we opened our eyes in the morning to the time we closed them at night how much warfare was going on how much the devil was attacking your thought life attacking you maybe through physical issues, you would be shocked. Most spiritual warfare, as we've already said, takes place in the mind for control of your thoughts because as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And for all the years before we got saved, we were brainwashed by the devil to think his way because he wanted us to live the way he wanted us to live. And spiritual warfare as a Christian starts the day we get saved. And now, as Paul said in Romans 12, 2, don't be conformed any longer to this world's way of thinking, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But as we talked about last week in Galatians 5, remember we talked about the war that was going on inside of every child of God, but we also looked at how Paul promised us that if we walk in the Spirit, we absolutely would not fulfill the lust of the flesh, in that context, the old nature. If we walk in the Spirit, Paul said, we will absolutely not fulfill the lusts of our fallen nature. Guys, we will know in part, in part, that we are walking in the Spirit if we are living in humility. You say, what does that look like? It will be manifested by a submissive heart towards those that God has placed over us. 
It's not the only evidence or the only indicator we're walking in the Spirit. But it's a big one. I don't know if you realize how important humility is. I don't know if you realize how important humility is. Just like pride is at the core of our fallen nature, humility is at the core of our new nature if we're walking in the Spirit. If you notice in Galatians 5, where he talks about, in verses 22 and 3, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, doesn't he? The love, the joy, the peace, the long-suffering, the kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Is humility mentioned in there? Why isn't humility mentioned? Because humility isn't really a fruit of the Spirit. It's the soil from which all the fruits of the Spirit grow. Just like pride is the soil from which all the works of the flesh grow. Look at uh, Galatians 5.19 and so on. Humility is the character of God. Remember uh, Philippians 2, where you know Jesus came down, he laid aside his glory, and uh, he uh, humbled himself, became a man, right? Humbled himself. W- what is humility? Just real quickly, I'll give you two very simple answers. There's a vertical humility and a horizontal humility. A horizontal humility is humility I show to my fellow man, uh, hopefully mostly to the body of Christ. What is it in essence? It's you're more important to me than I am. Esteem others better than yourself. True humility is not walking around putting yourself down. I'm worthless. I'm a worm. That might be pride masquerading as humility. True humility when it comes to the body of Christ or people in general, horizontal humility is basically says you're more important to me than I am. Vertical humility, the humility we exercise toward God is simply this, God, I can do nothing except through you. Uh, as Jesus put it in John 15, we, we can do nothing apart from God. That's true vertical humility. It's not God, you do most of it, but I'll, I'll get in there and I'll help out and watch. Together we'll have victory. No, it's, that's pride. Okay, true humility says, God, I'm helpless. If you don't do it, if you don't work, if you don't change me, if you don't deliver me, it's not going to happen because I can't do it, okay? And God does not resist the humble. He resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And that's something we have to understand. Humility is very important. And if you're walking in the Spirit, it will be manifested in part. And, of course, that's what we want to do if we're going to be victorious, right? But if you're walking in the Spirit, you'll know it because, in part, one of the, I think, biggest indicators is going to be that it's going to be manifested by a submissive heart towards those that God has placed over us. Look, God is the supreme authority over all creation. We know that. But He has delegated some of that authority to three main institutions which He has created. Now listen, these institutions are essential for the function of human society, so they're pretty important. And God has commanded mankind, because he has has all authority, Uh, he's invested or he's delegated some of the authority of these three main institutions that that together make human society a reality, and uh, he has commanded mankind to submit to these in authority over us. Institutions, uh, people that actually are involved in these these, um, institutions. Here they are very quickly, human government, the church, and then marriage and family. I'll combine those together, okay? Guys, all three are vital to the health of any human society, and all three function, listen, under the principle of authority and submission. I'll give you these, I'll just give you one scripture reference for each, and there's many, but human government, Romans 13, 1, which we'll look at more deeply in a moment. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Hang on to that. We'll come back to that in a moment. Human government. The church. Of course, this would apply to Christians, okay? Talking in Hebrews uh, 13, verse 17, the author is talking about how we should uh, act towards those who are in leadership in the church, uh, the church that we go to, the local church. He said, obey those who rule over you as your pastors and elders, and be submissive. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Marriage, Colossians 3.18. Paul said, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting 
in the Lord. Children, submit to, obey your parents, Ephesians 6, verses 1 and 2, and so on. And guys, all of these, once again, fall under God's authority. All of these, okay? And must never be seen as above his authority. Uh, for example, God has placed the husband over his wife. And God commands her to submit to his authority. But listen, that authority is not absolute. It's not absolute. Ultimately, God remains the supreme authority over her life so that if her husband tells her to do something that God has forbidden or forbids her from doing something God has commanded, listen, at that point she is to disobey her husband and obey her Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 5.22, Paul said, Wives, submit to your own husbands, listen, as to the Lord. In other words, it's Paul's way of saying, as long as your husband wants you to do things that are consistent with what the Lord would want you to do, then submit to him. If the day ever comes when he is telling you to do things that God has forbidden, or forbidding you from doing things God has commanded, like being in the Word, coming to church on Sunday morning, uh, that kind of thing, then you know, then you are to disobey him and obey your Lord Jesus Christ. And the same is true, guys, when it comes to human government and the local church. God's laws always supersede the laws of man. But in general, submission to human authority is a mark of godliness and a characteristic of those who are walking in the Spirit. Now, as we've been studying this, Peter has been admonishing us to live godly lives by obeying God's authority over us. And now he turns, as we have just talked about, his attention to the very institutions that God has created and delegated authority to, he turns to these very institutions and commands us to submit our lives to their God-given authority over us. Again, the whole section that Peter's dealing with is glorifying God, living a new life. You're, you've been redeemed. You're no longer who you used to be. You're, you've been redeemed from that. You're brand new. You're born again. Uh, that was all chapter 1. Now chapter 2, first thing he says is put off. The Greek is strip away the old way you used to live. It's not automatic. You've got it now. You're Christians, but you can still live that carnal life. But strip it away. And then he begins to say, tell us how important it is that we walk in the Spirit and begin to live that new life. And that new life, guys, is rooted in submission. Submission to authority. The devil was the first rebel in the universe. Rebellion is the root cause. Of course, rebellion linked to pride. But rebellion characterizes all of Satan's demons, Satan himself, every person on the face of the planet that doesn't know God. Rebellion is at the heart of unbelievers. Some manifest it more than others, of course. But uh, God, when he saves us, he wants us to yield that rebellion to him to be crucified. And then he begins to work on us a heart of humility, which manifests itself in a heart of submission towards those in authority, ultimately God, but all of those that God has placed in our lives. And so that's where Peter's going. And he opens this section with the word, therefore. We're going to be in verse 13 starting tonight. He opens this section with the word, therefore. Now, we've already talked about this because Peter has used therefore a number of times already and uh, when you see the word therefore it means that the author in this case peter wants to make an application based on what he has just gotten done saying well what did he just get got done saying well turn back to verse 11 he said beloved i beg you as sojourners and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul having your conduct honorable among the gentiles or the unbelievers that when they speak against you as evildoers they may by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. We studied that last time. Therefore, submit, which means obey. Submit yourselves to every ordinance, which means law. Submit yourself to every law of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king of supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using your liberty as a cloak for vice or for sin, but as bond servants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. 
Now, guys, I want to camp on this, and some of you have already heard me teach uh, on this topic at different times. Uh, if so, please bear with me, because every time we've ever taught on this topic, Christians and the government and, and that kind of thing, uh, we've always come to Peter, okay, to these verses to kind of, you know, uh, talk about this. But now we're actually in First Peter. So uh, let me just say this, because Peter brings this up right here. As Christians, we live in two worlds, two worlds, the physical and the spiritual. And we're citizens of two kingdoms, America and heaven. Unless, of course, you're here visiting from Latvia or something, then you're a citizen of that country. Um, but I assume most here are from America. And uh, so we are uh, citizens of two kingdoms, America and heaven. And guys, as such, we must learn to live in both simultaneously. Now, that's not always easy. That, that's not always an easy thing. Uh, there are many Christians who live in one almost to the exclusion of the other. Let me explain. There are many Christians, especially because of the, uh, the current political climate, uh, that are so focused on American politics, the kingdom of man, we'll say, uh, that their allegiance to the kingdom of God on the earth is neglected. And then you have other Christians who seem to think that because human government is corrupt, that they don't have to participate in it. They don't have to vote. Uh, they don't have to really pray for their, uh, their uh, leaders in government. And I've heard people say, why bother? They're all corrupt. They don't have to fight against evil legislation that uh, uh, kills uh, the unborn in their mother's womb or uh, other laws that curtail our religious freedoms. Look, both of these are extreme positions that lack balance. Balance. And balance in the Christian life is critical if we're going to be good citizens of both heaven and earth. Guys, this was a, an issue in Jesus' day. It was a, actually a hot-button issue that his enemies tried to use against him. Turn to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, starting with verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. So the Pharisees, we're going to read about the Herodians, two groups that hated Jesus and wanted to do away with him. So they plotted together how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God. Be careful of people that flatter you. Don't buy into that, okay? Because often they flatter as a pretext to get you off guard, to attack, uh, to do something that will hurt you in some way. So here, here comes a group of guys. Jesus, of course, already do that. But uh, here comes his enemy saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone. Well, that doesn't mean he doesn't care about anyone. He's, not, he's no respecter of men is the idea, okay? Um, nor do you care about any, anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, before we get into it, let me just give you a little background. There were actually three taxes imposed by the Roman government. The first was a land tax of one-tenth of the grain and one-fifth of the wine and oil produced by your fields. They would uh, assess this annually, annually, okay? A land tax. Secondly was an income tax, which amounted to 1% of a man's income. Oh, those were the days. One per, income tax, 1% of a man's income. And thirdly, you had a poll tax, sometimes referred to as a head tax, which was levied on all men from 14 to 65 and all women from 12 to 65. Why the girls had to pay a couple extra years, I have no idea. Talk to the Roman government. But guys, this poll tax amounted to a denarius per year. Now, a denarius uh, was, the, was a day's pay for a soldier or for the common working man. A denarius, okay, a day's pay. And this poll tax amounted to one day's pay a year. And uh, this was a tax that everyone had to pay simply for the privilege of existing. So they gave you the privilege, you're existing, we have to tax you. I'm waiting for Cook County <laughs> to come out with that one, okay? But guys, of all the taxes imposed by Rome on its subjects, man, this was the one the Jews hated the most, this was the one that infuriated them the most, and this was the tax the Pharisees and Herodians were talking about. 
Taking all this into account, the question which the Pharisees and Herodians put to Jesus, listen, was really a masterpiece of demonic cunning, if you think about it. I mean, no matter how he responded, he was caught on the horns of a dilemma, basically, and they knew it. If he said that it was lawful to pay this tax, well, then the Jews would have turned against him. Because in the Jewish mind, first of all, paying taxes to a human government really grated on them. And a tax that gave me the, for the privilege of existing, hey, only God holds my life in his hands. No government uh, can give me the privilege of existing and I have to pay them. That's where they fell. It was a real hot-button issue back then. So if Jesus would have said, yes, it's proper, wow, they, they, all the Jews would have turned against him. His ministry would have been done to Israel, basically. On the other hand, if he said that, that it wasn't lawful to pay this tax, well, don't you know these men would have run immediately to the Roman authorities, reported Jesus, and they would have probably arrested him as being a revolutionary. Either way, the Pharisees and Rhodians must have thought that they had Jesus in a trap from which there was no escape. Now, Jesus exercises here what we have come to find out as we study the uh, book of Acts and the epistles. He exercises a spiritual gift known as the, uh, the gift of the uh, word of wisdom. The word of wisdom is a gift that probably everybody in this room has exercised unknowingly at one point in your Christian life. It's not a reservoir of wisdom like Solomon had that you can just draw from any time you want. It's a little piece of wisdom for a certain situation that when it comes out of your mouth, not only does everybody else marvel at the wisdom of what you just said, you're thinking, man, that was pretty wise. That wasn't for me. The Holy Spirit must have just brought that out. And, 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 and the Holy Spirit gave the Lord Jesus Christ this gift at this moment, the gift of the word of wisdom, to get him out of what was, by man's standard, an impossible trap to get out of. Listen how he handled this. In verse 18, But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? Then uh, they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but to God the things that are God's. Wow. I mean, you can't read that without getting goosebumps at how he, they had him in a jujitsu hold, you know, and they just, whoop, and all of a sudden now he's out and there, you know. Amazing how he did this. This final week of his life before the cross, it was like a tag team. All of his enemies were tag teaming each other to get to him. First came the Pharisees, and Jesus sent them away with their tails between their legs. Okay, here come the Sadducees. He confounded their trap and, and sent them away. Then they're teaming up, the Pharisees and the Herodians, you know. And every time they come, Jesus kept turning the tables until finally it says they dared not ask him any more questions. <laughs> um, we just read how Jesus said, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now this gets into something that we want to look at. The Greek word for render is a word that means to pay or give back. To pay or give back. In this context, guys, it means paying a debt, listen, owed to the Roman government for services rendered. We'll talk about that more in a moment. And just to finish the passage, verse 22, when they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. So he... You know, they really didn't know who they were messing with, okay? But here, guys, Jesus is teaching that as God's people, we live as citizens of two kingdoms, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. And, guys, there's always going to be people who are going to try to uh, get you to choose sides, to focus on one to the exclusion of the other. But here Jesus taught us, listen now, that since both human government and, of course, our allegiance to heaven... Since God has um, ordained both, well, he wants us to live in harmony with uh, both of these and maintain a balance. Let me just say this. Paul the Apostle said um, that we are to um, study the Word of God, to show ourselves approved. A workman who does not need to be ashamed, what? Rightly dividing the Word of Truth. Setting a course right down the middle. I find the older I get in the Lord and where we are uh, in this place in history of the church in America, I find that balance is something that is lacking in so many different Christians and churches. 
So many have become extreme to one end of the theological spectrum or the other. Uh, it even happens with politics. Some churches are ultra into the politics. Uh, some who you know could care less and don't even keep on top of what's going on. I think one of the greatest needs in the church today more than ever is balance. So many voices are trying to get us to become extreme in so many areas of our lives. We need to be balanced. Jesus Christ right here is promoting the idea of balance. We live in two kingdoms. The Jews wanted to only live in the kingdom of God and reject the kingdom of man. And, and of course, the secularist wants to live in the kingdom of man and rejects the kingdom of God. But Peter says we live in both worlds. We are citizens of both kingdoms as Christians. We're talking to the Jewish people too. And that means we must live in harmony with both kingdoms and maintain a balance. And guys, that means that we obey the laws of our country while at the same time living in obedience to the laws of God. Look, when our country was first established, the overwhelming majority of our founding fathers were Christians. You can read their writings. It's not hard to see it at all. And so many of the laws, because they were mostly Christians, so many of the laws that they put into place in our country, listen, came right out of the Bible. In those days, it was easy to obey the laws of government because guess what? So many of them were based on the laws of God. In fact, I remember reading how that um, when our government was being formed and, and, uh, and laws were being considered, our founding fathers in these conventions uh, would come to the floor and say, look, I was reading my Bible last night. you imagine? I was reading my Bible last night, and I saw a law of God here, and I think we ought to put this into our laws. Oh, yeah, yeah they vote on it. Yeah, that's great. This happened all the time. In those days, again, it was easy to obey the laws of government because, for the most part, those laws were the laws of God. Of course, all that has changed. And today, many of the laws of our nation run contrary to the laws of God, which has made it difficult, to say the least, to live in harmony with the state. But listen, before we get into that, let me, let me just say this. The New Testament lays down three great principles with regard to the individual Christian and the state. And we're talking about balance now, so let's look at this, okay? The state is not the automatic enemy of the Christian or the church. Now, some people don't see it that way. Some Christians look at the, at the government as being the enemy. And I agree that it's becoming more and more an enemy uh, today in our nation's history than ever before. And I really thank God for the reprieve that we have gotten, people of faith, uh, through this current president. Pray for him. Many hate him with a passion. Under the last administration, our freedoms as Christians were being taken away slowly, surely. God's given us a little reprieve. Don't take it for granted. But pray for this man because... Um, if there's another administration that comes in, it's going to take us right back to where we were, pick up right where they left off, and you're going to see a lot of real persecution happening to the people of God. But just in general, the state is not the automatic enemy of the Christian or the church. Why? Because God ordained the state. God created human government, okay? In general, the state is not automatically the enemy of the church because, I'll give you the first one, because civil government has been established by God. I just got ahead of myself, okay? Civil government has been established by God, the same God who made the church. So they're not automatically incompatible. Now, again, our country seems to be growing more and more antagonistic towards Christianity. We've gotten a reprieve, but as I said, we have seen over the last 20 years or so, really, uh, our country moving away from uh, the principles of God's word and establishing laws that are very contrary to God's word. But civil government has been established by God. Turn to Romans 13. Let me read to you. This is a famous section in the New Testament, Romans 13, on this very issue. Let's start with verse 1. I'm reading out of the NLT. Paul said, Everyone must submit to the governing authorities, for all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority in the government have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. Verse 5, so you must submit to them, to the governing authorities, not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear 
conscience. Now again, in Romans 13, Paul is dealing with the subject of civil, civil government. And uh, basically, let me just digress for a second and say this. In every ordered society, there must be authority and submission. Otherwise, you have a state of anarchy and nobody, listen, nobody can survive in anarchy. There are those who are anarchists. And they are harboring on the delusion that if you just get rid of government and let everybody just do what they want, it will be utopia. No, it'll be hell on earth. Because what you have then, I mean, uh, Paul in Romans 13, Peter, they both mention how God has given human government the sword to keep evildoers in check or to even execute those, capital punishment, who break certain capital laws that God says must not be broken, murder and so on. God says in Romans 9.6, he who takes the life forfeits his own life because life is precious. This idea that the death penalty is somehow uh, unbiblical, it's, it's cruel. And, uh, God himself said, I have given you life, it's sacred. If anyone takes another person's life, they forfeit their own life. I'm talking about first-degree murder. Okay, there's other manslaughter and, and all the different categories, but first-degree murder, okay? Uh, God says if you take a life, you forfeit your own life. But the idea is that um, nobody can survive without human government because it's anarchy. And what you have is then uh, bands of gangs roaming through streets, neighborhoods, pillaging, raping, killing, because there's no control. That's why, guys... Pretty much any government is better than no government. Now, think about that. I had a Christian who was a Muslim, uh, lived in Egypt. He came and spoke at the church years ago. And he said that even under Saddam Hussein's government, that was better than when he was overthrown and people were living with, you know, the, the survival of the fittest, right? Might is right. That's the thing, okay? He said even under a despot's reign... Some government is better than no government, is the idea, okay? And because of it, God has instituted human government, and no government can exist apart from his will. Now, you say, wait a minute. Are you saying if they, God establishes all human governments on the face of the earth? That's right. That's what the Bible says. Well, what about these despots? What about these people like Saddam Hussein or Stalin or Kim Jong-un or, or these uh, dictators that uh, persecute and enslave and tyrants to their people, starve them? God did that? No, God didn't do that. If God puts a person in power, that person has to answer to God. If they seek to use that power uh, in, a, in a perverse or in a, um, a tyrannical way, they will someday stand before the God of the universe and give an account and he will judge them. These uh, tyrants, they think they're acting, you know, nobody's going to tell them what to do and they're autonomous. God has raised up kingdoms and in uh, leaders, he can bring them down. And if they abuse their authority, and this goes for our leaders in government as well, if they abuse their authority, they will stand before God someday and give an account, and they will be punished. So, unless, of course, they receive Christ, which we pray for, okay, then all their sins are washed away. So God certainly does not approve of the corruption, brutality, and tyranny that... Uh, Many of the world's leaders, past and present, um, have walked in. Uh, but, but furthermore, let me say this. Without civil government, many valuable services that we take for granted wouldn't be possible in a city environment. Now, if you're living in the country and our farm, it's different. But most people don't live on a farm. They, most people live in cities, okay? And uh, you need civil government. If you're living in the city or close to one, you need civil government because, listen, no individual can have their own water system, their own sewer system, their own public transportation system, not to mention police protection, fire protection, and a standing military for the uh, protection of its citizens on a national scale. The state is the uh, origin of many of the things that make life in civilized society pleasurable, if not possible. Number two, though, we're talking about civil government and our responsibilities to it. Number two, no one can honorably accept all the benefits which the state gives, but then opt out of all the responsibilities. We had a 
woman in our church many years ago when we first started, and she wasn't really going to our church. She knew somebody was going, so she came a few times. Well, this was in the early 80s, but I swear she was left over from the 60s. Uh, real flower child, okay? And um, she said to me one day, we were talking about this very topic, and um, she made it known that America, she didn't consider America her country, you know? This is not my country. I said, well, you live here, right? Do you enjoy the services that are provided by this nation? You know, she wouldn't acknowledge that she owed the, the government anything. You know, although she benefited from all the resources and all the programs and all the protections, but uh, she was of the mindset that you know she could benefit from all those things and yet not have any responsibility towards the government, which God ordained to give back or to be responsible in some way. That's a, a growing mindset, by the way. It's a growing mindset. Again, let me read this second point. No one can honorably accept all the benefits which the state gives, but then opt out of all the responsibilities. It is beyond question, guys, that the Roman government brought to the ancient world a, a sense of security and peace it had never known before. Never known before. For the most part, listen, the seas were cleared of pirates, the roads of thieves, civil wars, wars were replaced with peace, and tyranny for Roman impartial justice. And Rome was very big on justice. They were very big on justice. They prided themselves on impartial justice. One historian writes, and I quote, it was the glory of the Roman Empire that had brought peace to a troubled world. Under its sway, the regions of Asia Minor and the East enjoyed tranquility and security uh, to an extent and for a length of time unknown before and probably since. This was the Pax Romana, the person under Roman authority, uh, Roman peace, but the person under Roman authority found himself or herself in a position to conduct his business, provide for his family, send his letters, and make his journeys in security thanks to the strong hand of Rome, end quote. Rome brought peace to the frontier world before its time. It built roads. All roads lead to Rome. That was the idea. They built these roads all from Rome in different directions so that their armies could travel more quickly to regions uh, where they wanted to conquer or they had to go back and keep the peace. But it also provided a great way for merchants and people to travel and commerce to begin to spread throughout the known world. And it brought peace because nobody wanted to mess with the Roman government. They did not tolerate lawlessness. You didn't want to get on their bad side. They were pretty brutal. It was for a reason. They were brutal because they wanted people to understand that we have instituted peace and prosperity, and if anyone seeks to undermine the Roman government and take away the Roman peace, they will be dealt with severely so that any future person will look at what happened to them and go, I better toe the mark. I better walk the line here. And it really cut down on lawlessness and so on. So again, guys, it isn't right for someone to enjoy all the benefits which the state bestows upon them, but then seek to exempt themselves from all the responsibilities of citizenship. And listen, number three, part of that responsibility is to pay the state, and this is what we don't like, part of that responsibility is to pay the state its due in the area of taxes. If you're still in Romans 13, if you go down to verse 6, we read how Paul says, pay your taxes too for these same reasons. For government workers need to be paid. They are serving God in what they do. Give to everyone what you owe them. Pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them. We stop there. When Jesus said, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, he was saying in effect, let me paraphrase, yes, it is entirely lawful and right to pay the poll tax to Caesar because that tax money belongs to him for the function of his government and for the services and protection it all provides to all of us, end quote. Again, Romans 13, verse 7, uh, give to everyone what you owe, pay your taxes, government fees, and so on, and give respect and honor to those who are in authority. Now, if you were to mention that to the average anti-Trump person, or anyone they didn't like, in a, anyone that disagreed with them that was in a position of power, Maybe you've heard this, okay? If I'm going to respect somebody, they have to earn it. Okay, well, if, if respect was based on character, and, and in some ways it is for some situations, okay? But when you're talking about 
government and uh, those who have been appointed uh, to run government and keep the peace and so on, you respect the office if you can't respect the person. I think of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar was a despot. Daniel respected Nebuchadnezzar not because he was a righteous man, although I believe, chapter 4, he got saved. But Daniel respected Nebuchadnezzar. He respected his office. He was a king, and the Bible says very clearly that nobody becomes a king but what God puts them there. And so therefore you respect the office. Remember Jude, this cryptic little thing where it says that... um, Lucifer, Satan, uh, and uh, he uh, disputed with Michael the archangel. Now, Lucifer is the top angel in heaven. Not for long, but he was created above all the other angels, the Bible tells us. He was the top angel over all of them. He was a cherub. Uh, Cherub is the highest form of an angel. So he was placed in charge of all the other angels. Michael... The archangel is a very powerful angel. The word arch means ruler. So obviously he is a ruler over a segment of the angels. Lucifer over all of them. And of course over Lucifer was God Almighty. But Michael the archangel is a very powerful angel. And we read in Luke, uh, in uh, Jude, that when uh, Lucifer uh, disputed with Michael, the archangel, over the body of Moses, what that means, you tell me. He says it in passing like we all should know what he's talking about. I'm going to ask him when I get to heaven. What what in the world were you talking about? What did Michael say? Michael did not bring against Lucifer, who by this time had fallen. Enemy of God, right? Michael did not bring against Lucifer a railing accusation, but said what? The Lord rebuke you. Michael respected the office, if not the person. This is something we have to understand. This is why the Bible says we are forbidden from speaking evil against the rulers of our people. Because God has put them in authority, and whether they're, you know, however they are as a leader, we need to pray for them. We need to respect them. In fact, that's what uh, Paul says here in Romans 13, and Peter's going to say in just a moment as we get back there, if he says, I can't respect the man, then respect the office and pray for the man. Again, not only are we to respect and submit to our rulers, but again, as I just said, we are to pray for them. Turn to 1 Timothy 2. Now, guys, listen to me. There are some Christians, maybe you're here tonight, I don't know, but that would listen to this teaching online or on the radio and would be furious with me because they can't believe that God would use anybody like Donald Trump They are flat out convinced that he is not a man of God, not being used by God. He's of the devil. And to hear a pastor teach what I'm teaching, they become enraged. But again, guys, nobody becomes president of the greatest nation on the face of the earth if God didn't put him there. That's just the way it is. Yes, but he's this and that. Is he perfect? Of course not. Can God use someone who's less than perfect? Of course. I think of Cyrus, king of Persia. And back in Isaiah 42, 44, 45, somewhere around there, God says, Cyrus, my what? My servant. Cyrus was a despot. But God said, I am going to use you because you're going to be the one who are going to release my people. They're going to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild my temple. God can use people who are less than perfect. And if anyone thinks he doesn't, I don't know what you're reading, what you're looking at. There's no leader who has ever existed who has been perfect except one who is coming, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are all waiting for the day he returns to establish a real kingdom of righteousness. But uh, until that time, we are to pray for our leaders and don't get into the trap. Well, they can't be of God because, you know, look at all the accusations of this or that. You know what? I'm not going to defend that. God knew what he was doing when he put this man in office. My responsibility is to respect him, to honor him, and to pray for him.
As Christians, that's our responsibility. In 1 Timothy 2, starting with verse 1, Paul said, I urge you, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. And Paul has in mind earthly leaders. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. You know, sometimes Christians, they, uh, they confuse me. Uh, we don't want Trump in office. We want a Christian in office. Well, pray for him. Maybe he'll become a Christian. I mean, that's what Paul was saying, right? Pray for those in authority that we might live peaceable and peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. You know, you pray for your leaders, they get saved, they start ruling like people of God, like Christians, because they are now, okay? Verse 3, this is good and pleases God, our Savior. Now, head back to 1 Peter 2 as we kind of bring this to its conclusion. I want to address some of the concerns that many of you might have as you're sitting here tonight in light of this teaching but back in first peter 2 starting with verse 13 once again therefore peter said submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the lord's sake whether to the king of supreme or to governors or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good for this is the will of god that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men Submit yourselves to every ordinance or law of man, Peter said. And Christians would no doubt say in response, what if we don't agree as Christians? Do we still have to obey these laws? And to that I ask, or I say, that depends on whether or not the laws of man contradict or conflict with the laws of God. The only time God allows us to disobey civil government, guys, the only time is when it passes laws that are in direct violation of God's laws. I mean, there might be times coming when we have to choose between obeying God and government to the point of going to prison or being persecuted. Those days may be coming. We may see that. I don't know. Things can change pretty quick. But Paul in Romans 13 and Peter right here in 1 Peter 2, they're not talking about that. They're not talking about that. They're talking about being good citizens and thus, listen, good witnesses for Christ. That's the context. And guys, if the day ever comes when our government commands us to do what God has commanded us not to do or not to do something God has commanded us to do, well, then as Peter said in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men and we have to suffer the consequences. Because again, God's laws always supersede the laws of man. Let me quote one last time what the Lord Jesus said on this subject in Matthew 22, verse 21. Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are or the things that belong to God. Guys, even as Caesar's image was stamped on Roman coins. And by the way, that was really a mark of a man's authority. From what I understand, when a... Uh, a new king conquered uh, the king of an area. The first thing he did was to melt down all the coins that had the prior king's image on it, and he would have new coins minted with his image on it. The idea was people, money talks, I guess. The idea was that when people saw their coins with the image of the new king or emperor, it was a psychological thing that they now they now got behind this individual as their new king and leader. So that's the first thing, from what I understand, uh, from history. They did, okay? And uh, even as Caesar's image was stamped on Roman coins, listen, the image of God is stamped on us. It was done so at creation. When God said, let us make man in our image, the Trinity talking, and after our likeness. Just when you held a coin back then and it had Caesar's image on it, it symbolized that you were a member of Caesar's kingdom. As you look in the mirror, you've been stamped with the image of God. It's a testimony that you belong to his kingdom. His kingdom. 
And that's really important, guys. I think probably the most important lesson we can take away from this study. Give to the government what belongs to the government. But give to God what belongs to God. Give to the government taxes. Give to the government your uh, abiding by the laws uh, and so on. But give to God what belongs to him, your life, your love, and your service. Your life, your love, and your service. Someday, guys, all the kingdoms of, on earth will become the kingdoms of Jesus Christ. Revelation 11, verse 15, uh, when Jesus comes, it talks about it. And the, uh, all the kingdoms of man have become the kingdoms of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and he will rule over them forever. Someday, all the kingdoms of the earth are going to come under his authority. He will be the sovereign over all the kingdoms. He will have a new kingdom that will cover the entire earth. Until that time, the Bible tells us to respect those in civil government, our leaders. Respect them, pray for them, obey them as much as we can, but worship the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Serve him with all your heart. That's the balance, okay? Now, let's finish. Peter said that by living this way as good citizens to our city, state, and country, he said, we will put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Verse 15, right? First Peter 2, 15. If you live as a good citizen, obeying God's laws, you will put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. What does he mean? Well, Peter knew that the world was full of people who knew nothing about Christianity and would probably never set foot in the church to find out more about the Christian faith. But, of course, their ignorance wouldn't stop them from criticizing and mocking Christianity. I don't know if it was last Wednesday or su Sunday, a week or so ago. But we talked about, that was last Wednesday, we talked about all the misconceptions floating around the pagan world about Christians. That when they gathered together for communion, they were really uh, drinking the blood of sacrifices and things like that, or the blood of children. The pagans, pagan parents told their kids never to go into a Jewish home because they abort their fetuses, stick them in jars, and bury them in the walls of their homes for good luck. This was the ignorance of foolish people. Had no idea what Christianity was all about, but they uh, didn't stop them from criticizing and mocking Christians and the Christian faith. But Peter knew, guys, that the only way to reach these people with the gospel, listen, was for Christians to be living epistles. What do I mean? If these folks, and there are many people who will never set foot in the church, so you know what you got to do? you got to bring the church to them. What do you mean? You and me. We are the church. They're not going to set foot in a building called the church. So you have to take the church to them. You have to be living epistles. They know nothing about the Christians or the Christian faith except what they see in you if they know you're a Christian. That's why you need to, as Peter's been saying, live out your faith. Put away the old life. Start walking in that newness that, that Christ has saved you to walk in. Because you will be a living epistle. You will be a living gospel presentation, so to speak. You're, you're probably going to be the only way they will ever have any kind of contact with God's word, with the gospel of Jesus Christ, by watching you. And many will get saved if you live the kind of life, be the kind of witness God is calling you to be. Now, this was the only way these folks would be exposed to the gospel through the transformed lives of God's people. Don't ever underestimate the power of a transformed life. This is what Peter's talking about. Don't you understand? God has saved you. You're born of the Spirit. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. The power of God is within you. You are a force to be reckoned with. The world is in darkness. Do you think the world's going to come to you? you got to go to them. And if you live a transformed life, they are going to take notice. They may not agree. They may not get saved. They may persecute you. But at least they can't argue that something's different. You are definitely not of this world anymore because of the way you live. Turn to Titus 3. Because Paul says something to Titus along these lines I think you should read. Titus 3, starting with verse 1. Again, I'll read the T.I., the NLT. Remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. He's talking about Christians, our responsibilities towards those in authority in the government. Uh, Christians should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. They must not slander anyone and must avoid quarreling. Instead, 
they should be gentle and show true humility. There's that word again to everybody. Once we too were foolish and disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. That was before Christ. Verse 4, But when God, our Savior, revealed His kindness and love, He saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. You can read the rest of that. Verse 8, This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to insist on these teachings so that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. These teachings are good and beneficial for everyone. And the idea is Paul is telling Titus, look, you go tell our people that you minister to. You're a pastor, Titus. You tell the folks coming to your church how important it is that they live a new life. And remember that when it comes to people who are unsaved and how they're living, don't look down on them. We once were there. It was God's grace that saved us and transformed us. Don't look down on those folks who are still living in sin because they don't know any better, just like we didn't know any better. Have compassion on them. Let your light shine. And if the time should ever come when they ask you to verbalize your faith, so be it. Until that time, you be a living epistle is the idea. Do good things because that will let your light shine and so on. So again, back to Peter. Let's close. First Peter 2, verse 15. So he talks about, you know, again, um, this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, verse 16, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bond slaves of God. He just throws that in because it, even in Peter's day, nothing changes. You had people going around, and Paul writes about them too. Uh, we're saved by grace, let us sin that grace may abound. How foolish. How are those who are dead to sin to live any longer therein? If that's your mentality, then you're not saved. That You're not saved. But there's a lot of folks who will say, well, I'm, I'm free in Christ. I have, I have liberty. I'm saved by grace. And so they use that as a, a license to go out and live recklessly, sinfully, and so on. And Peter says, look, we're talking about being a witness, having people come to Christ because of the way we're living. Then don't use your liberty. Sure, you're, you're free in Christ. Don't use your liberty, though, as a, as a cloak for sin. You're, you're a bond slave of Christ. You belong to him. Verse 17, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Guys, we are to honor all who are in authority over us. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians 5.21? He said, submitting to one another in the fear of God, right? What did he mean? He, he just simply means that at any time in our life, we have to submit to people. When we're kids, we submit to our parents. We get a little older, we submit to teachers. A little older than that, we have to submit to the police and the government and so on. Because God has built society on the principle of authority and submission. And without it, there's anarchy because you have nothing but rebels, and that's not of God. So honor all people, all people in authority over you. Love the brotherhood, of course. Fear God. Honor the king. Warren Worsby said, and I quote, Peter named the offices we are to respect. The king meant the emperor. In democratic nations, we have a president or a, a prime minister or so on. Uh, Peter did not criticize the Roman government or suggest that it be overthrown. God's church has been able to live and grow in all kinds of political systems. And remember one thing, guys. Last thing I want to bring up. Uh, this is pretty significant. When Peter said these words, verse 17 at the very end, honor the king. Who was on the throne in Rome at this time? Caesar, Nero. Caesar, Nero. Caesar, Nero. Um, you talk about a less than perfect king or leader. He really, I think, either was insane or demon-possessed. I mean, it was Nero who would choose a thousand Christians, have them dipped in pitch, and placed on, tied to poles, dip them in pitch, tar, and plant these poles all around his gigantic garden, light the Christians on fire, while he rode naked on his chariot, screaming in this demonic screeching voice through these burning bodies. And Peter says, honor the king. Honor the king. Don't honor the man. He's a wacko. 
on him to the office. Pray for him. And if he won't be converted, ask God to remove him. But you honor the office. Because nobody can be put into power except God puts them there. And if it's a work of God, you must sit back and go, Lord, I don't know what you're doing. I'm going to just pray. I'm going to do my best to honor the king, honor the president, whatever. But this is your country. You founded it. And Lord, please be merciful to us. Sometimes we get leaders that are better than we deserve. And often we get leaders that are just what we deserve. I hope we have one today who is better than we deserve. And we don't want to be under the authority of a man who is just what we deserve. May God help us, right? Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And Lord, we thank you for the man you've put in the White House. No, he's not a perfect man, Lord, but he's your man. We pray that you will save him and his family. We pray that you'll fill him with your spirit. We pray, Lord, that you will use him for your glory, that, Lord, this nation might, start, might begin to turn around and come back to you again. And that's not going to just happen through Donald Trump. It's going to happen if your people, called by your name, humble ourselves, seek your face and pray, turn from our wicked ways. And your word says you will hear our prayers, forgive our sins, and heal this land. Work in your church, Lord. We need to repent. We need revival. But we thank you, Lord, for the reprieve that you've given us. Give us grace to be good citizens. Lights in the darkness. For we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.